The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 71, The Silk Road. This week's episode essentially focuses on trade networks. The history of trade is not something that we have focused on specifically, but there has been a strong undercurrent of the aspect of trade throughout the entire history of this podcast, going all the way back to the first volume. In the Middle East, during the Neolithic, we are aware that obsidian was finding its way to different places to its origin. And we speculated that due to it being desirable in appearance, that obsidian trade was taking place. However, there is a feeling among historians that trade has existed for as long as humans have communicated with each other. During the course of this volume, we have focused on the Persian empires, the European empires, the South Asian empires, the steppe cultures and empires, and the Chinese empires. So we have good understanding of the Eurasian network of cultures. The Persians and the Europeans were closely linked through their borders with one another. And likely the Persians and South Asians were too. We know that the steppe cultures became more directly linked in the politics of the highly urbanised ancient society. But they were also very closely linked to the Chinese societies who were geographically detached from the rest of Eurasia. The special link between China and the rest of Eurasia was facilitated by the high mobility of the steppe cultures. So this links us to why the Silk Road is called the Silk Road. The Silk Road is a modern Western name for this trade route which would have been of great interest to the societies of the West when these unknown exotic goods started to emerge. One of the products of China that was unknown to the Western world was silk. So silk represented this new trade link well. Although the Silk Road flourished for the first time during the period of the Han Dynasty of China, it's not impossible that the product would have never travelled down these routes earlier. The Silk Road is known to have been fully functional for about the last 2,000 years. But this actually represents the time where there was a definite awareness and knowledge of the cultures from the Roman Empire in the West to the Chinese Empire in the East. Products still could have travelled down these routes, but the empires at either end may not have necessarily understood its origin due to a lack of knowledge. It is extremely difficult to pinpoint the first instance of Chinese silk in Europe. Many sources refer to the period of Han Dynasty China as the first time that Chinese silk reached Europe, but some sources claim that Chinese silk may have reached cities like Athens even earlier. Sericulture Sericulture is the process of silk cultivation, and we introduce this during Volume 2, which demonstrates just how old this process is. 
We believe that silk production started taking place during the time of the Yangshao culture, which means that it predates the emergence of the Silk Road by 3,000 years or more. The process of sericulture is quite gruesome in itself due to the fact that it involves the slaughter of many silkworms during their pupation to become silk moths. While the silkworm creates its cocoon, it produces silk, and this is the material that attracts those who desire silk. The process of pupation needs to be interrupted in order to obtain the optimum amount of the highest quality silk, which is why the silkworm is not allowed to complete its pupation. The modernisation of trade routes. So when we talk about modernisation, we can be forgiven for wanting to naturally think about recent times. But even while we concentrate on this period, we can see great advances in culture. And especially when it comes to travel and associated construction. We can go all the way back to episode one of this volume when we spoke about Darius the Great, the king of the Achaemenid Empire of Persia. Darius brought the Persian Empire forward with great building projects, including the Royal Road, built by around 500 BCE. The Royal Road would allow for a smooth commute from the heart of the Persian Empire in Mesopotamia to the west of the landmass called Asia Minor. And although its sole purpose wasn't trade, it would serve as a great facility to speed up trade, which would excite wealth within the Persian Empire. Any produce that filtered into Persia from the east could be transported to the lands of the Mediterranean and the Persians were able to control this. This was absolutely fine until the Roman Republic grew to start controlling all of the lands of the Mediterranean and this would mean that the Persians would have much less of a desire to allow the Romans to enjoy the fruit of their modern trade routes as the Romans became rivals to the Persians. So the Romans would need to develop methods by which they could trade with the lands east of Persia, such as India, without actually having to deal with Persia at all. And the only way that they could do this was by sea. We have to remember that the Romans had little knowledge of anything to do with China, but they certainly knew about the lands of the subcontinent who had been trading with the kingdoms of Mesopotamia, certainly since the days of the first modern societies such as the Sumerians of the 3rd millennium BCE. A very interesting scripture gives us some clues about how the Romans overcame the issue of reaching the lands of South Asia without needing to travel through Persian lands. It's called the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea. It is written in Koine Greek, the language of the Roman Empire's eastern lands. Of Periplus is a comprehensive account of a nautical journey. The Erythrian Sea is an archaic term in this context to refer to the waters beyond Egypt and surrounding the Arabian Peninsula and the subcontinent. Not only does this Periplus provide us with an account of all of the ports along the journey from the Roman Empire to the Indian subcontinent, but it also highlights the trade opportunities including the specific resources abundant at each location. We are told of the opportunities to acquire aromatic flowers from the Nabataean kingdom of Sinai, wine from the Himyarite kingdom of southern Arabia, 
ivory from the Aksumite kingdom of Eastern Africa and spices from the cultures of the Indian subcontinent. This scripture mentions a great inland city called Thena that is the source of raw silk. This is particularly intriguing. The Roman knowledge of this produce from a far-off land is known thanks to its successful movement to the lands of Bactria and the Ganges River, which seems to suggest that China had already developed a trade relationship with lands beyond the eastern steppes. Zhang Tian More clues exist from the other perspective, the eastern perspective. We have found it difficult to date the periplus of the Erythrian Sea, but some historians have suggested of a date around the 1st century. And if we look at the links from the Chinese perspective, then there is none better than the man called Zhang Tian, who we first mentioned back in episode 67. He was alive way back in the 2nd century BCE and he was sent by Emperor Wu of Han as an envoy to travel to the lands of the Yueji and negotiate a political alliance with the traditional enemy of the Han, the Xiongnu. The Xiongnu captured Zhang Qian and imprisoned him for at least a decade before he was able to escape and reach the Yueji. By the time he reached the Yueji, the political feelings had altered and the Yueji had become comfortable with their lifestyle and disinterested in the ongoing matters between the Han and the Xiongnu. It would have been a fruitless journey, but it may be that Zhang Tian discovered the reason for the Yueji's comfortable attitude. Perhaps it was that the Yueji were enjoying trade links with the lands now directly to their own west and were no longer dependent on the east. And so Zhang Tian appealed to the Chinese emperor to allow him to continue to gather information on these relatively unknown societies of the west. The Chinese emperor approved and Zhang Tian would bring back knowledge of the Greek-influenced societies of Bactria, the Parthians and the cultures of the Indian subcontinent and he would bring that knowledge back to Han China. After this point, we can see considerable efforts throughout the 1st century BCE by Han China and their rivals the Xiongnu to establish control of the traversable land route from China to the west and this was obviously because societies quickly recognised the opportunities that lie beyond them and how those opportunities could bolster the economy of your respective nation and elevate your power above that of your enemy. After Zhang Qian's death, we have the records of a living Chinese historian to refer to regarding early information about the West. His name is Suma Qian and he describes the Parthians as a peoples who live beyond the lands of the Yueji. Suma Qian described them as fully sedentary people living in various cities and those cities numbered into the hundreds. He describes how the people used the lands to cultivate crops which would not have been unusual. However, he does describe a ruler of the lands who gives orders to local chiefs and it would make sense that this ruler would have been the long-serving king of the Parthians, Mithridates II. The reign of King Mithridates was one of the most iconic reigns in Persian history and it is largely because of the activity of other nations and empires of the time. 
the Armenians were at their most powerful under the rule of King Tigranes the Great, and we spoke of this period back in episode 3. The Seleucids at this time were experiencing a steep decline, and this is because they were trapped between three mighty and expanding empires. These empires were the Parthians under the rule of Mithridates II, the Armenians under the rule of Tigranes II, and the Roman Republic, who by this time had recently gained control of the Balkan Peninsula and were looking to establish their imperial rule over the Asiatic lands of Asia Minor. So by focusing on the Parthian king Mithridates II, we have considerable reference to a diplomatic link from him to the Han Empire and a political situation which required him to have diplomatic links to the Roman Empire. And therefore we can see how these two very iconic endpoints of the Silk Road began to gain knowledge of each other and why we can see that knowledge of a Chinese society in Roman scriptures dating to the early years of the Roman Empire as referenced in the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea. Sino-Roman relations So we can refer back to silk again and we can determine that the Romans of the late Republic knew more about silk than they did about China and they knew very little about the nature of silk. Despite knowing of its existence, they believed it to be a plant fibre. The Parthians certainly knew more about silk and were more readily using it on their banners, for example, so Marcus Licinius Crassus would have seen it close up when he met his final fate against the Parthians at the Battle of Cary. For the Parthians, it would not be in their interest for Rome and China to have too much knowledge and contact with each other. If the Parthians could control the trade routes, then they would always maintain the upper hand in global trade, being able to limit the trade abilities of their traditional enemies, the Romans. China was too distant from Parthia for there to be any kind of animosity between them, as both parties would have to negotiate with the steppe cultures who controlled the expansive lands between them both. These steppe cultures would benefit hugely from this necessity for a strong trade link between Parthia and Han China. And so a group of tribes from the Yueji that had initially migrated west along the steppe lands created a settled power base. This would quickly become an imperial entity in its own right. And we talked about this imperial entity in episode 61. The name of the group of tribes was the Kushana. And we described them during this period as the Kushan Empire. They would control the lands to the south of Bactria, effectively controlling the relationship between Parthia and Han China. The growing power of the Kushan Empire would have been concerning for the Parthians as their own control over trade links would be compromised to a degree. The Kushana would have had enough knowledge of the steppe culture to be able to travel at speed between Parthia and China. With Han China now wrestling control of the eastern steppe lands away from the Xiongnu, they would be able to create a direct link to the Kushan Empire, who in turn bordered the Parthian Empire, who now in turn bordered the Roman Empire. Despite tensions existing between Parthia and their neighbours, the Romans and the Kushana, the Parthians knew that their neighbours needed them as much as the Parthians needed their neighbours. So a good degree of healthy diplomacy had to take place. 
The Silk Road was now a connection of four mighty empires and the transport networks improved in order to facilitate the Silk Road to its highest possible capacity. Rome and China were now both very aware of each other and both very keen to see what the possibilities were of a direct relationship with each other and so efforts were made to create contact with each other. During episode 68, we discovered how the Han Dynasty of China were always extremely clean to control the lands in and around the Tarim Basin, which was on their route west towards what we can recognise as the lands that came under the control of the Kushan Empire. The Han would recognise these lands as a collective entity which were referred to as the Western Regions. For around 200 years, Han China was battling for control of these lands against the Xiongnu, who also recognised their strategical importance until a Chinese military general called Bang Chao was able to succeed in securing a hegemony over these lands and was rewarded the title Protector General of the Western Regions by the Han government. It was in the year 97 that Bang Chao would attempt to send a trusted envoy called Gang Ying to the Roman Empire. If successful, it would be the first time that a Chinese envoy had ever reached the Roman Empire. Scriptures give us a feeling about just how much of a mission it would have been to travel that large distance 2,000 years ago. It certainly appears that Gang Ying was able to reach Parthia and possibly as far south as the lands of Mesopotamia on the Persian Gulf. A large ocean is described that could be the Persian Gulf, but it isn't completely clear. Parthian seafarers warned Gang Ying that without favourable conditions, the sea journey to the Roman Empire could be arduous and unsuccessful. So it appears that he opted not to take the journey, possibly not having the resources to do so. Gang Ying did learn a lot about the Roman Empire, despite not reaching its lands, however and he was able to report back on the sheer magnitude of trade opportunities that the Romans were enjoying, and the goods that would have been common to Rome, but interestingly exotic to China. He described Rome by comparison to China in some aspects, including the interesting way in which their governors could be deposed without question, and no suggestion of a mandate of heaven blessing the appointments as was the case in China. Most interestingly is the claim by Gang Ying that the Romans were interested in sending envoys to China, but that it was the Parthians themselves who actively prevented it. So now China was quickly learning about the politics of the West. The restored Han Dynasty is called the Eastern Han Dynasty and its retrospective history is recorded in a 5th century book called the Ho Han Shu and we can get clues about the emergence of the Silk Road and even Han China's interaction with the people that they called the Da Qin, known to us as the Roman Empire. In particular, we can find records of Roman envoys visiting China during the reign of the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius which was a period when the Roman Empire was at a high point. The envoys sent in around the year 166 may have sailed from the Persian Gulf to the coast of the modern country of Vietnam, which represented the southernmost lands of Han China. 
With the connection now made between Rome and China, the power and influence of the Parthians and the Kushans had been compromised now that Rome was able to find alternative routes to China and vice versa that avoided the lands of the Parthians and the Kushans. Although the Silk Road was not strictly about the import and export of goods from Rome to China and vice versa, it was also the route by which many cultural aspects of many different cultures migrated. The spread of culture. By the third century, there would have been a considerable amount of activity by many wealthy parties along the multiple different branches of the Silk Road. Certainly we target silk as the iconic product that existed in the East and not in the West until the Silk Road started to become highly active from around 2,000 years ago. We see stories of Roman emperors dressed in silks during the 3rd century and we also see the movement westwards of Chinese lacquerware, something that is celebrated as a Chinese traditional product. China would benefit in other ways via the Silk Road. They would receive many horses from the nomadic steppe grassland cultures and then beyond that they would receive spices and precious stones from the lands of the Near East, Arabia and South Asia. As we mentioned, the first great empire that Han China would encounter while heading west would be the Kushan Empire. And from the Kushan Empire it would be possible to head southwest into Parthia or southeast into the Indian subcontinent. This would be important for the fact that the Kushan Empire would be strongly influenced by a religion that emerged in the lands of the Ganges River called Buddhism. Due to its position on the Silk Road, this form of Buddhism would migrate along the Silk Road eastwards and become the nucleus of the birth of Buddhism in China. Over 18% of the modern Chinese population identify as Buddhist and this is the largest main religion of China, considerably more abundant than Christianity or Islam. This was due to the rapid movement of people along the Silk Road. Amazingly, China is now seen as a country much more connected to Buddhism than the country of Buddhist origin, India. Some fundamental materials would also move along the Silk Road. We spoke about the invention of paper in China during the Han period and so we would see the migration of paper production skills move west and in exchange the very basic glassware production skills of China were boosted by the expertise of the cultures of the Near East who by comparison were very advanced. Being on the extremities of the trade link both the Romans and the Han dynasty would have to protect their trade route through tributes and bribes. Often the Romans would use their extensive metalworks to pay the protectors of their routes east, while the Chinese would use their silks to protect theirs. The Kushan Empire was relatively short-lived, lasting from the 1st century to the 3rd century, before the Sasanian Persians subjugated them. So the Kushan Empire is highly iconic of the emergence of the Silk Road due to its central location around the modern country of Afghanistan, and its glory years being those where the wealth of the Silk Road was first being realised on a large scale. Anything from Europe, Africa, Arabia, Persia and India would have to travel via the Kushan Empire if it were to travel by land to China. One of the capital cities of the Kushan Empire was the city of Bagram, which still exists today in Afghanistan. 
In the year 1937, a hoard of treasure was excavated that demonstrates this aspect of history wonderfully. Due to the political instability of Afghanistan, these incredible artefacts have had to be hidden to avoid their theft or destruction. But the hoard really identifies Afghanistan and its historical ancestor, the Kushan Empire, as the centre of world trade during the years of the Roman Parthian Kushan Han Dynasty period. Examples of the artefacts uncovered as part of the hoard include a plaster medallion with characters from Greek mythology, which we shouldn't be surprised to see due to the presence of Greek culture since the eastward drive of Alexander the Great around four centuries previous, with the city of Bagram itself initially established as Alexandria ad Caucasum, one of the cities established in Alexander the Great's name. We can also see an ivory plaque demonstrating a depiction of architecture resemblant of Buddhist stupas built by the Maurya Empire of India. We can find glass items that are likely to have been influenced by the expert glass production skills of Egypt and Syria. It is clear that the artefacts illustrate the crossroads of cultures that typify the flourishing of the Silk Road, as well as any verbal account or story. The Silk Road hasn't really been referred to as the Silk Road until the modern age that we live in today and we can often see it called the Silk Roads or the Silk Routes out of respect for the amount of different routes that inevitably emerged across land and sea. Certainly when Rome was besieged by the Visigoths under their great leader Alaric in the year 408, Silk was one of the items on the list of demands made of the Romans so that the city could be spared. However, silk was clearly just a small part of the products, culture and knowledge that spread due to the proliferation of Silk Road trade. The major Parthian religion of Manichaeism reached China alongside Buddhism, but Buddhism survived to the modern age. Production techniques such as that of paper used the Silk Road to migrate west and become an essential facility for the success of the printing press during the early modern era. Despite the cultures of Europe and China being brought closer together by the emergence of the Silk Road, that air of mysteriousness about each other has remained thanks in part to the vast distance that the Silk Road has to cover. It was a thousand years after this proliferation of east-west trade routes that Marco Polo would make his journeys of cultural discoveries to the mysterious lands of the Far East, still mysterious despite centuries of awareness. Shortly after Marco Polo's journeys during the 13th century, we can see the dramatic migration of the utilisation of gunpowder travel from east to west in a history-changing manner. Gunpowder was possibly originating accidentally from a Chinese magician's attempts to create an elixir for immortality, something that many Chinese emperors craved all the way back before the large-scale realisation of the Silk Road. The impact of East-West relationships are fascinating, but also an incredible journey through the history of the world in its own right and from its own perspective. We have covered in depth all of the directly affected cultures of the ancient Silk Road including numerous episodes about the Romans, the mighty empires of Persia, the development of nomadic steppe cultures, 
the Indian cultures that represent a unique branch of the Silk Road, and the Chinese dynasties are to the most iconic lands of the Silk Road. Now, it seems incredible to think that there is still an area of the world left to visit in this volume that was completely detached and isolated from all of these events going on in the Eurasian landmass. Next week, we cross the Pacific Ocean and visit Peru. Well, it seems absolutely incredible to think that we've like 71 episodes and, and we've we've explored all of this history, haven't we? So much of it and all the Eurasian history has now been covered and uh, it just sort of leaves us really during this period to um, to go over to the Americas and just a few brief episodes about the um, what was going on in the Americas, the, the significant cultures of the Americas. Um, during this period and um, for those of you who are concerned maybe that we're not covering every area of the world we'll um, we will cover those areas so sub-saharan africa and um, you know places like japan for example southeast asia um, we'll start coming into their own a bit more in volume four and so we'll, we'll have to sort of retrospectively catch up with the story and so so their time will come and certainly we won't sort of completely dismiss what has gone on before the medieval period when we get to them so um, you know it's all part of the big game plan really so at this point so but obviously we don't want to get too tied up really in um, in sort of stories that are maybe not as significant um, enough to be uh, to warrant me making podcast episodes about them if we want to sort of get through this entire project in a timely manner. So um, next week, the Americas and, and like I say, it's just incredible to think that in, like, in all these episodes we've we've covered so many different cultures and so many different stories. You know about Rome, Greece, um, you know, China, is, is, India. Incredible, incredible stuff. Um, Attila the Hun, of course. Um, how the European cultures, how Europe, Europe broke up after the Roman Empire. Brilliant, brilliant stories. So, yes, yeah, so it's just maybe um, another half a dozen episodes, perhaps. And then maybe that'll be it. Maybe we'll be at the end of Volume 3. So incredible to think. Um, but then I'll, we'll probably take a couple of months off in the summer as he's as is sort of quite traditional in terms of um, the interim between volumes. So it gives me a chance to have a bit of a breather. Uh, of course, next month it's the podcast's third birthday. So we'll have been going for three years, publishing a weekly episode um, every week for the last three years, which uh, is something I never thought I would be able to, to do. Um, so it seems quite incredible that we're at that point. Um, also, I might be planning a little trip down to the Chalk Valley History Festival. Those of you who follow me on Facebook would see that I've um, I have posted a number of links that um, are from the Chalk Valley History Festival uh, website. If you live in the UK, um, it'd be wonderful to maybe bump into one or two of you down there. So uh, I, I'm not in, there in any official capacity. I'm not nearly that important, but um, I'll certainly be sort of um, enjoying and uh, taking in some of the fantastic events that will be taking place down there. Obviously, there was no festival last year because of uh, COVID-19. So 
uh, it's great to see it back this year and uh, provided I can get a ticket um, I may be down there and I hope uh, maybe to bump into one or two of you that would be a real treat now as ever if you want to support the podcast of course you can you can go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website click on the Patreon link and sign up to make monthly contributions you can make monthly contributions for as little as one dollar per month and um, unlike other Patreon um, account memberships that that you may or may not know of uh, we don't force you to sign into a large monthly donation in order to qualify for awards I'm quite happy to count up what you've um, contributed over any length of time and, and enable you to qualify for the reward anyway and uh, such as Willie Moller, who has um, who's presented a question, which is uh, something you uh, can have for as little as $10 in total contributions. You can ask a question and I'll devote two or three minutes at the end of a podcast episode to, to try and answer that question. I'll um I'll tackle Willie's uh, question next week when I've had a bit of a, a bit of chance to sort of dwell on the question itself and and give um what I believe to be a decent answer you know so um I'm not necessarily an authority but um certainly I'm happy to give my opinion so uh, that's something to look forward to next week a Patreon question and of course you can qualify as well to do that if you go to the Patreon website and uh, and sign up to make monthly contributions. When you do, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. You'll be able to go and tell your family and friends and feel incredibly proud of yourself. Now, I, I criticised last week's episode, episode 70 on the on the China's Dark Ages, Um for being quite complex and it was a it was an era of like sort of 300 years which we couldn't ignore but there was so much going on it was incredibly hard to follow and and especially as um for for i think uh westerners as well who may be listening to the podcast and listening to the chinese names it's, it's ever so confusing and i'm certainly not the the best orator of of chinese words and and place names and people so um it's um it's, it was an incredibly difficult podcast episode and uh, there won't be many like that. I got a message from uh, Nicholas Kerr in uh, in Australia. Who's, but hi, Chris, I completely agree that episode 70 of season three was the hardest to follow. But it has piqued my interest into a subject of history that is neglected by Western historians. I'm so glad at your attempt to cover this subject and will follow your suggestions to other podcasts and YouTube timelines. Without your podcast, I would never know where to go to pursue these interests further. I must also give you credit for your pronunciations. Your accent is strong, but somehow your pronunciation of French, Chinese or Middle Eastern is perfect. Cheers, Nick Australia. I was quite surprised, actually, to receive that. I can I can speak a very small amount of French, so I sort of have a bit of knowledge of the pronunciation of, of French. Um, Chinese is, is hard for me to tackle because I don't really have a lot of experience of the uh, the tone of of words is like the intonation of 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 the words of Chinese is very very important in terms of um, distinguishing between the words. So I'm, I struggle with Chinese really, and then Middle Eastern. I'm I'm um it, that's really difficult to find material on on the web that sort of 
uh, explains how to pronounce things correctly. So, so I take a lot of guesses with with those Middle Eastern dialects. But um, sometimes, you know, if you can get um, like sites like Uglish, for example, and uh, Google Translate, um, are, are not too bad in terms of trying to establish how words might have been or or are pronounced. So. Uh, but look, thanks for the compliment, Nick. It's uh, very kind of you to even say what you said. Um, we um, one of our um, one of our members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, who who calls himself Wink, has written in and put, "Hello, Chris. I am a fan of the show and a proud Illuminati member. I am enjoying the history of China, and I wanted to share my father's scholarly work in China. I have summarised his work. It's a quick read, and also included my family history." Keep up the great work. Can't wait until we get to the Mongolians and Marco Polo. I am wondering if there's some room for some uh, uh, some special episodes on this topic. Cheers. Um, I don't really know what I'm going to do with Marco Polo yet. Um, I'm not sure. Um, but certainly, um, definitely, there will be, um, you know, more than one episode um, relating to the Mongolians. Um, such was their incredible impact on on the global uh, medieval world sort of late medieval world in, incredible really and um also uh, that that sort of corresponds with uh, the ming dynasty of china as well so um so that will all be sort of encompassed in into sort of one uh part of or one one set of episodes let's say um, so yes, yeah, certainly we'll do it, and and i encourage you also to to share this link that you've sent to me um and um, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see you've been. You know, your life has taken you to so so many incredible places that I can only imagine ever going to in my lifetime. So, uh, I encourage you, uh, please, to to share the link on the social media pages. Uh, but thanks for writing in. Okay, well, believe it or not, everyone, I'm going to let you get on your way this week. I'm going to dash off and uh, start planning. Uh, the uh, the set of Amer- uh, American episodes, so like about the the American continents during this period, and uh, thank you so much for listening. And uh, don't forget to uh, rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to us. And also, don't forget to be good. Come to the History of the World Podcast dot com and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.